When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to the Thursday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. We're double dipping. We got some football to start and some basketball to finish. Ohio State did have signing day, and we did talk to Ryan Day on Wednesday, and they announced a hire. And then there's a big basketball game coming up on Thursday night. So Nathan and Steven in the second half will give you all the basketball that you want right now from the Buckeyes. But we're going to start off with two things, three things, actually. First off, a guy who's not coming, Steven, which is Rayshon Davis. No surprise because Ohio State's Twitter account on signing day on Wednesday morning said, like, it's signing day. And then, like, a minute later said, like, signing day is over. And it was like, oh, they're not getting Rayshon Davis. They know it. They're not getting him. They're not waiting around for him. And he is not a Buckeye. Yeah, I think the first indication was the fact that we got Ryan Day at 9 a.m. in the morning and not 11.30 like it was originally planned. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I said this to the Texans. I think this would have just been a bonus game. And not because you don't need an ins- a, another linebacker in this class. One, you really don't because you've got three coming in the next class. You might add a fourth. And by the time a lot of you hear this, I'll have a story up on who, who that fourth guy might be if they do end up going that route instead of the transfer portal. But it was a long shot to land Ray John Davis, even though he was just here 10 days ago. It was clear that even back when he was still committed to LSU, the USC still had the inside track here. I think landing Damani Jackson, his teammate, along with a list of other guys who were from modern day, that powerhouse out in California who I listed to the Texers. Sign up for the text. You can get that type of information. But I, I just thought it was – a long shot to get him. It was interesting that they got into the running and he made it a point to get out here from California and spend the day in Columbus. But you don't necessarily need to add another line, linebacker to this class. And if you only got to add either him or JT Tumalau, I think everybody would take the five-star defensive end who might also be able to swing in and play defensive tackle if needed. I'm always intrigued by the strong second in recruiting. Like, I almost like wish you could track that. It's like, oh, it's a strong second. Like, it came down to he's – a, he's an L.A. kid – who went to USC and the only, you know, in the end, the only place far away he was really thinking about was Ohio State. I do think it's possible if this was two or three years ago, they get him. But as we have noticed, USC, finally, they didn't change the coach. 
but they changed their thinking. They're back from the dead when it comes to recruiting. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh, you didn't pull a top 50 kid out of LA? It's like, no, you didn't because he went to USC. It's just that like for three years, teams were doing that all over the place. And like if Clay Helton had his head straight a couple years ago, like CJ Stroud might not be here. Right. So, I mean, this is like, this is what happens when you sort of target areas of weakness and then the local in state power wakes up and USC has woken up. So, as you said, would have been a nice bonus. They were not in a place, Stephen, where they were like, oh, we really need this guy. But in part, they probably they didn't allow themselves to get in that position because they knew it was going to be hard to beat USC for this guy. Yeah. Honestly, I compare this recruiting this recruitment to what Emeka Bukas was, they had already, I think they had already made the decisions. They just needed to validate it by going somewhere else. Now with Emeka Abuka, he hadn't been to Columbus in two years, but I think he fought, fell in love with it then, which is why the crystal balls never went away there. But it was, all right, I haven't had a chance to see any other schools here. And I don't just want to be making a decision just based off of emotion. And so let me take my time here. Let me go see Oklahoma, and let me see if Oklahoma can poke any holes in what I already feel about Ohio State. And, Ohio, and Oklahoma couldn't do that, which is why I ended up with Ohio State. I think the same thing happened with Ray John Davis, where I think I'm in love with USC, but let me make sure. Let me go all the way across the country away from home and not just make sure that just because it's in my backyard, it's the best thing for me. I come here, I see what I need to see, and it's, it's, it's cool. I tweet about it, and my dad's even tweeting, I love it, maybe we come back. but. Eh, after we think about it, I like USC too. So it's a little bit of that, but also, yes, to the point of USC locking things down, this is a step in the right direction. Now, I'll believe that that pipeline is shut off if Malik Murphy, 2022 quarterback, the number two pro-style player, quarterback, the number 30 player, who honestly might just end up being the Justin Fields to Quinn Ewers is Trevor Lawrence when this is all said and done in the rankings. If he ends up a Trojan, I'll believe that Ohio State probably can't go into California and just raid that place anymore. And then they'll just go somewhere else. I mean, they'll just yeah. find they'll yeah, yeah, yeah. find where the weakness is, which is what they do so well. All right, so that's what's happening. There was nothing else. As people have noted, even though signing day had moved, it's moved to December, they still had some stuff pop in February the last couple of years. And, like, they just, they just didn't have one this year. So uneventful. But the Ryan Day half hour, 35-minute or so, Zoom call with reporters was eventful, Nathan, because this is not coincidental. They timed it up to do this. They announced how they are replacing Greg Madison, and there are two moves at play here. But let's talk about the first one, which is Matt Barnes being promoted from mostly special teams, but also helps in the secondary to now he – actually, there's three moves. He is the secondary coach. Kerry Combs is singularly the defensive coordinator. There's no co-coordinator, but Matt, Matt Barnes is the secondary coach. So, and then Parker Fleming is promoted to a full-time assistant to bump people up. So there's actually three things here. One is Kerry Combs becoming the defensive coordinator, and he's not going to have a position group responsibility the way he did this past season. The next is Matt Barnes becoming the secondary coach. The next is Parker Fleming becoming a full-time assistant. Let's actually start at the top of that chain, Nathan. What does it mean to you that Kerry Combs is the defensive coordinator and he will not have the same kind of hands-on position responsibility as he did in 2020? I think 
it, it, I think it's a necessary change for this staff if you're just talking about the positions. When you look at what this team didn't accomplish – or that's not a good way to say because it, it got the national championship. But if you look at the, the fact that defense was a deficiency kind of throughout the season, especially the secondary being a deficiency, I agree with what Ryan Day was saying today that as you're putting together this staff, it makes sense to try to address that. And I think one way to address that is to give more specialization to your special teams coaching and then have your defensive coordinator do what a defensive coordinator is supposed to do. I don't think it, if, if especially if you're only going to have one and you're not going to have that code coordinator, I think you kind of had to back off of what Kerry Combs's positional responsibilities were, right? Because I think that's too big of a job for one guy to handle and then also be your main secondary coach, which is what he essentially was last year. So just from a, like the dominoes falling, that being the first domino that falls or however you want to look at it in line, but that, that one makes a lot of sense to me because as much as Kerry Combs like made his name for himself as a special teams, what you're talking about, not special teams, secondary hands-on guy, a guy who finds elite defensive back talent and then develops elite defensive back talent. As much as that is his reputation, that's not what Ohio state has hired him to do. They've hired him to be the defensive coordinator. They kind of need to almost go, I think all in on that and, and give him the, opportunity to be to dive into that head first and immerse himself in that job I don't think anybody can be surprised by this for all the reasons you just outlined Nathan that he's the defensive coordinator so they're going to let him coordinate I would say I don't think it had to happen and I do have a read on that Stephen what did you think of this not that again not that I don't think anybody was surprised do you think it's the right move that that to pull Kerry Combs away from having a specific position responsibility? I think it's the right move to just make him the defensive coordinator, given that we're offenses are in today's college football landscape. I don't think who they chose to replace. We're not doing that yet. That's not what we're doing yet. We're talking about Kerry Combs. Sometimes you do this, Steven. Sometimes you do this. I like to try to keep the podcast in boxes. I said we were going to do Kerry Combs. Then we're going to do Matt Barnes. Then we're going to do Parker Fleming. So on Carey, this role for Carey, you're good with. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with him focusing completely on scheme. Here's the hard part. He's so good at the other thing. <laughs> like, it, it is – he is as good of a hands-on technician relating to players – energy coach as I've ever seen. And so it's like anything. You are very good at something and the result is you get promoted and you want to be promoted. He wants, he doesn't only want to be a position coach anymore, but I cannot help but be reminded of what I have said a hundred times on this podcast. And again, maybe I'm wrong on my read on this, but this is what happened in 2018 when they took Greg Schiano out of a position group and they made him only the defensive coordinator. And I have said a million times, I think he schemed them into oblivion. And maybe that's unfair. Maybe that's wrong. It's my read on it. And here's the thing that interests me, because Nathan, when Ryan Day was talking about this on Wednesday, it makes sense. He says, well, Kerry's going to move around at practice. Well, that makes sense. You're the defensive coordinator that you don't only want to be with the secondary guys. And so the linebackers are like, man, I never talked to the defensive coordinator. The defensive line's like, I never see the defensive. That's not great. I don't know exactly what it means for meetings. Because that's where most of, that's where the, a lot of the stuff happens. You're in your meeting room with your coach. So Seven Banks and Cam Brown 
and Josh Proctor and Marcus Hooker, when they're in their meeting room with their coach now, it's going to be Matt Barnes, and it's not going to be Kerry Combs anymore. I think. So, I, and I actually need to ask this. I need to ask it. I'm, I, I'm, I hope I'm not speaking at a turn. But my impression of this is if you don't have a meeting room where you're in charge of, like, keeping tabs on players, their personal life, making sure they're, they're okay, plus meeting with them every day, I imagine that Kerry in that time when he doesn't have that responsibility is in scheming stuff up. That's part of the reason why they pull you out of that. Well, you're not in charge. You are not responsible for a, a group of players anymore. You're responsible for getting this defense straight. And that makes me nervous. I like still, and I get some places, Brent Venables is the defensive coordinator, but I think sometimes it's good for a coach to stay attached to a group so that you aren't watching film and just diagramming stuff and you stay more connected to the real daily stuff, which Carrie is so good at. So here's what makes me a little nervous about this is I think the secondary room is not going to be as good. That is not a shot at Matt Barnes. It's, it's a praise of how good Carrie Combs is at that. And then I wonder if it actually does make your defense better by giving Carey all the time in the world to do whatever he needs to do from a scheme standpoint. Because in the end, whatever you scheme, the guys have to be able to execute. And they're not professionals. They're college kids. They're not doing it all day, every day. They have other things they have to do. There's a limit on practice time, right? So I understand why they did it, and I'm not surprised by it. But if you had said Matt Barnes is the secondary's coach, but Carey is still the cornerback's coach, that Matt's the secondary coach, he's a, but like you leave him connected a little bit, and maybe it's semantics, and I'm getting caught up in that, and Kerry is going to be very connected. Because of the Shiano experience and my belief that being freed up to scheme was a bad thing, I don't, on the surface at the moment, Nathan, love every part of this. It, it, I understand what you're saying, and I wasn't here for the Shiano experience, um, but I, I think it, you're right to have that hesitation, but I think it would come back to being, it wasn't that Greg Schiano being freed up the scheme was what caused the disaster. It's how he chose to use that time and approach it. Right. So I think that's the, the thing this ultimately comes back to. You've got a guy in Kerry Combs who got to kind of see that experience a little bit, or at least from not, not up close, but from afar, his first year while he was gone, I, I think, and you've got a coach in Ryan day who went through that experience too, as part of the coaching staff. So I think all those, um, experiences play into how they'll probably move forward with this going forward. I'm, I'm, I'm often the devil's advocate guy, but I'm also sometimes kind of the benefit of the doubt thing here. Like, okay, I, I understand why they set things up this way. And now it just has to go out. Now they just have to go out and execute it. And I think that's still the crucial thing here. It's not necessarily so much that I understand what you're saying, but I also think it allows Kerry Combs maybe to be in every meeting as the secondary guy, as opposed to having to go in and lead the quarterback, the, the defensive back meetings you know what i'm saying like it, it that can work just as well as as what you're talking about maybe this is overthinking it a little bit but if on Kerry this Com podcast overthinking yeah, you're right on a five right. day a week podcast you're right that's been going five <laughs> days a week since april 1st you're and right then talked about football every day during a pandemic when there was nothing overthink you're right i carrie combs's energy is one of his best traits but if he doesn't have a position room 
that he's meeting with on a daily basis and needs to talk to, and he's just there, to your point, just scheming it up, is he still going to be on the field, or do you just put him up in the box? Well, that was a debate this year, right? Yeah. I mean, that was that When was he still had a room, though. When he still no, had a room. So it was worth it being – is it worth now taking that energy that you know has been special and just putting it in the box because – He's not the guy talking to the secondary when they come off the field. That's Matt right. Barnes. Probably. No, I'm, I'm sure. I, uh, to that question, I would imagine, Nathan, that I'm, I would bet 90% he's in the box now this year for sure. No doubt about it. No one asked today, but that would be my presumption too. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, um, I'm sure he won't like that, but I kind of wouldn't care if I was Ryan Day or whoever. Like I'm saying, you have to be – our defensive coordinator, when we only have one, has got to be up there. Like that's how you see – the field in the modern it's like when Kerry Combs kind of complains about how he doesn't like recruiting over zoom and text message I kind of say tough like this is you're you're a football coach in 2021 like this is how it's done like um and it seems like he's doing it okay so it's not like he's not getting it done on zoom and text seems like they're doing all right but it's like it's one of those things to me where it's like yeah I'm sorry it's not 1982 anymore you got to come out you get this is how it's done and this is how he's gonna have to be up in the box I think and that's what's but then that becomes part of the challenge for Matt Barnes right because presumably he'll be the one that's down on sidelines. And now you've got to, you can't go out and not be yourself. You can't go out and just try to emulate and try to take Kerry Combs' personality and attach it to yourself. But you've got to find a way to make that same connection and be a motivator and a corrector and everything that needs to happen on the sideline when Kerry Combs goes upstairs. Like that's just part of the challenge for Matt Barnes now. Brent Venables is on the sideline though, right? Isn't he? He is. In DC. So, I mean, it can be done. So maybe, I mean, but, but he's, a little bit more proven. I don't know if, but but, but bottom line, I, I'm not that the game day thing is is far less important to me than how practice goes, yeah, and how the week yeah. goes. And so I will be curious. I thought what you were going to say, Stephen, is that he's so energetic at practice. Maybe now he spreads that energy through the whole defense, and maybe that's a good thing. That what what he had previously been doing, specifically with secondary guys, he now can go over to the linebacker group when Al Washington's working with them and give him a Larry, little Kerry Combs juice. And he can go give it to Larry Johnson's group. Or maybe that's a good thing. That, that, so I don't think at practice, and that is what Ryan Day said specifically, he'll be able to move around. I think that part of it might work. The meeting room is what I'm concerned about the most. I think you bring up a good point, Stephen, about game day. But I think maybe at practice, letting Kerry roam and letting the Kerry Combs practice experience yeah. Infectious, I think, is the right word. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Because, I mean, we got to see it the first practice, and he's yelling and yelling at refs, yelling at players, yelling at coaches. Yeah. That, that's, that's where now that energy is spent. You don't necessarily get it on a game day because he's in the box, but everybody gets it in practice, and it's not just a secondary group. So it is, it's probably a positive trade off that you take. Here's the other thing I want to say real quick about the sideline thing. You also don't want to take – I don't think you can take Al Washington or Larry Johnson off your sideline either. So you really are limited to who would potentially be up in the box, right? It's, it's, it's Combs or Barnes. It's one of the yeah. two. Especially now that Al Washington – it's just his room now. He's not, it's not him and Greg Madison, you know, collabing on this. It's all him. The, the Bullets, the Sam, the Will, the Mike, all of it's him now. So, yeah, you definitely want that on the field. So one of the things this also feels like to me that this is, I might, I don't know if doubling down is the right phrase, but this is like leaning into Kerry Combs that when we initially talked about, well, the, I mean, Greg Madison had the code DC title and he left. So it's like, Oh, what might they do? Are they going to bring in a single high safety expert? Are they going to bring in a guy 
who has a lot of different defensive experience to help out. And they, I mean, the guy you added is like, is totally inexperienced. So like, this is, this is more responsibility, more Kerry Combs. So if we had any doubt about what Ryan Day thought about Kerry Combs, this answered that because he did not bring in anybody to prop up Kerry Combs. He went inexperienced guys because he believes in Kerry Combs. But the one thing he did say, Nathan, which was interesting to what Steven said, Greg Madison worked with the linebackers. So it was like Al Washington and Greg Madison together. Ryan Day said we needed to lean into the secondary so that Matt Barnes and Kerry Combs are now both secondary guys first, even though Kerry's going to roam around. He said they, they basically need to let Larry and Al do their thing with the front seven. We don't really know how Parker Fleming may work in in when he's not coaching special teams. Cause you know, it's like, if you're, if you're at practice and you're not doing a special teams period, like what's your, your special teams coach is doing something. We don't have a clear answer on that, but what did you think of that? Nathan, that Ryan day said that we needed to do more, whatever he said, paraphrasing with the secondary and that the way they adjusted this, that got done. And, and additionally, he was asked separately from all of this, just about, the defense and how the national championship game went. And one of the things he admitted was among them, among the problems there, he said there were some things that weren't coached well in that situation. But at the same time, I think overall the decision and the decision to promote, I guess you call it promotion of, of Matt Barnes over into being the full secondary coach is also a, an admission to me of what the personnel was last season and how that was maybe somewhat of an unfixable problem when you're trying to defend Alabama and where this personnel still needs to be taken in this next year and that you need two full coaches kind of devoted to them at all times if you're including Kerry Combs as like the second one of those. I think that ultimately that's what he's saying. And I think it is interesting that at the same time he's saying this, you know, the secondary needed this attention, but then he gives the full attention of that secondary to the two guys who were the coaches last year of a defense that finished 122nd in passing yards allowed and 59th in opposing quarterback efficiency. I mean, those are the two guys who were coaching this team last year. But I think when you reconfigure it, you take the special teams away from Matt Barnes. It is like giving extra coaching to that group going forward. It's understanding what's going to, what's going to take to win a national championship. And I think it's having faith with this that group especially. With, with this group especially, it's having faith that, listen, Larry Johnson's defensive lines are going to be great. And you have belief that Al Washington is going to recruit and develop great, solid linebackers here. And, I mean, he's recruiting great linebackers here. And, I mean, the linebackers were solid last year. So I think you can at least believe they'll be solid next year. The problem is you can't stop anybody from throwing the ball on you. And that's what it takes to win a national championship. I do think part of this also is leaning into Al Washington to that point that Greg Madison, I think when Al Washington got here, he was still a very young coach. I think he was a guy that they really believed in could get it done on the recruiting trail. And I think they thought if you were having him work alongside Greg Madison for a couple of years would maybe help kind of polish off his coaching on field stuff. And now He's ready for that. So I think this is also leading into Washington. But it also might just be a what – it doesn't mean this is how the coaching staff will look a year from now. Right now, as he said, I think he said, and I always find this interesting, what the perfect roster is. And we have an idea of it. But I think he said you'd like 22 secondary guys. Didn't he say that? And they have 19. So they're short on numbers. And of those 19, 
a gazillion of them are young guys. So even more than a normal year right now, Nathan, right now, this right now, this spring football, this preseason, this 2021 season, they need extra secondary coaching. And Al Washington, although he's losing all his starting linebackers, he doesn't need extra help coaching Taraji Mitchell and Dallas Gant and Kayvon Pope and guys who have been around forever, right? That there, He has more of a solid group. Even as a one-year fix, Nathan, that might be just leaning into the idea of extra coaching for that group in this situation. No, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Like it's, 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 it's a reflection of what they had personnel-wise last year as being why you, you're not just, you know, laying that all on the shoulders of these two guys for not coaching up a level that – coaching them up to a level that maybe they couldn't reach, but you're also admitting that there still are some of those potential deficiencies or more as to what you're saying, that it's just a really young group. Like you don't have a Sean Wade returning with this group this year. Um, you just don't like, you don't have someone who's going to be a preseason all American in the secondary. So it's going to, it's about what we were talking about the other day. It's about finding even that second cornerback. It's a lot of what we were talking about last year, frankly, at this time, except some of the guys that we thought, we're going to be the solutions at some of those positions are still there this coming year. And maybe we're not as sure that they really are the solution. So that's, again, I think part of this is it's, it, it, it is what you're talking about, but it's also Ryan day saying it, it is kind of a vote of confidence saying that with a normal off season, with a quote unquote, normal spring, a normal off season, a normal preseason leading into a normal season. I think these are the guys who can help these guys that we have get better. And Stephen, he did say specifically again when asked about the Alabama game, he said, you know, everything, it's personnel, scheme, and coaching, and where are the deficiencies? And he said, I think our personnel is good enough. Oh, is the scheme right? And is the coaching right? And I don't believe him. He's not going to no. rip the guys, but Stephen, like the personnel, at least, at the very least, is not at what the standard in the secondary often is at Ohio State. That personnel wasn't good enough last year. And he'll never say that publicly, but he can hint at it as much as he wants. And I think he's hinted at it on multiple occasions. The scheme wasn't right either. You can't play single high safety or have four linebackers on the field to make up for your lack of pressure and think you're going to stop Alabama from throwing the ball on you. So those two things weren't there. I think this move, making Kerry Combs defensive coordinator, full-time defensive coordinator, and taking him out of a room might fix the scheme aspect of it. The personnel may or may not be there this year because – like we just, you just said, some of these guys are still young. Unless, especially those 2020 guys, unless those guys take a major jump, which I think some might, but if those guys take a major jump, we're having a different conversation. But if they don't, we're going to be in a situation where the coaching might be there and the scheme might be there, but the personnel might take until 2022 for it to fully be there and we can be comfortable with that secondary. And a way to make that jump maybe is coach them extra. Yeah. Give them kind of two guys who can really zone in on them. So I do think that part of this – is the thing that I think does make a lot of sense with the way Ryan Day presented it. We'll get to the other two parts of this coaching move next on Buckeye Talk. So the second part of this is who they decided to do this with. And one is moving Matt Barnes. It is a promotion from assistant secondary or however you phrase it and special teams to now just the secondary coach. Because Stephen, as you were alluding to earlier, there's a way that you can make Kerry Combs the defensive coordinator, but you could have left Matt Barnes in his job and hired a secondary coach mm -hmm. and made Matt Barnes that new guy's assistant. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, Kerry Combs is going to maybe make sure this guy is, you know, doing it the Ohio State way. But Ohio State hired Arizona State's co-defensive coordinator and secondary coach. That was out there. 
And part of this is, Nathan, the idea of, and it applies even more to Parker Fleming, Ryan Day likes promoting from within. You immediately put up a story about that at cleveland.com on Wednesday afternoon. Where are you, Nathan, on the Ryan Day promoting from within philosophy? Because with this move, they did it twice. Matt Barnes got a promotion and Parker Fleming got a promotion. Yeah, and as, as I wrote uh, from a conversation you and I were having earlier today, it's been really a theme beyond that, right? You could argue that, you know, obviously Corey Dennis was a promotion from within. You could argue that Kerry Combs was essentially a promotion from within. I mean, even though he'd been away from the program for two years, he was a guy who had coached with Ryan Day before that, had been a longtime Ohio State guy before that. So it, it really does seem to be a something he believes in pretty deeply. I mean, because it's been it's it's been the hallmark of the moves he has made here thus far. And I, I understand it from a certain point that you take, you know, go out and find the best quality control guys you can find and you promote them into to smaller roles. I say, obviously you're not making them coordinators right away and then let them progress. And people, we should bring up also Parker Fleming's a little bit different than Corey Dennis was. Corey Dennis had never been a full-time assistant of any kind in college football anywhere before he was promoted in that role last year. Parker Fleming has, it's been at smaller places, but Texas state, James Madison, he was here at Ohio State before as a grad assistant. He's a little bit older. Like, I think a lot of times people hear quality control, and they sometimes think of that as the same thing as a GA, and it's not. Typically, these guys are maybe a little bit older, have had more experience. So it's not something that I assume is not is going to be a problem on its face. It, I do have some concerns, though, about this hesitancy that, that Ryan Day seems to have about, you know, you know, the way he talks about it in terms of, of because it, it is connected to what they did with Matt Barnes, that that if you're getting why would you why would we go out and look across the country for someone who might have different philosophies? Why not? We can already get the guy who knows our philosophy and our scheme and he's right here. Why isn't that the best choice? I, I quibble with that a little bit. I think you gain from bringing in new perspectives and new ideas. And I, I hope that they're if I was an Ohio State fan, I would hope that they're not sacrificing that for what he calls um what, what what's the word he used um continuity, continuity. which continuity. i would which a fine line between that and just like familiarity and comfortable comfortability right i wonder how much of this has to do with how with how long he's been a head coach because how many guys their first job is ohio state football or alabama football or usc football you know they've been a head coach somewhere else I mean, he got this job the same way he's hiring some of these other guys. He got promoted, a hire well, from within. And so it's to the point of familiarity. It just seems like, I don't know, maybe he's trying to build a coaching tree. At, at the, by the time Urban Meyer got here, he had been a head coach at some other places, and he had some legitimate contacts that he could go to and kind of lean on to be assistant coaches. I'm not saying that Ryan Day doesn't have contacts. He had Jeff Halfley, but they worked together side by side. It wasn't, oh, I had this guy who was a quality control room 10 years ago, and now he's gone on to be a coordinator and a quarterback's coach. His name is Ryan Day. Let's bring him in here. No, it was, hey, we were quality controls together, and now he's an offensive coordinator or a position coach. Let's bring him here. And so instead of doing that, he's – it's as, it's as if if Urban Meyer would have saw what saw in Ryan Day what he saw in him when he brought him to Ohio State and promoted him to be the quarterback's coach or offensive coordinator when Ryan Day was at Florida. So, Nathan, you believe that, right, that this is not coincidental, that Ryan Day got his job this way, and, like, from a psychological standpoint, that then he leans this way in hiring people, like, that, that connects, does it not? 
I wondered about that a little bit. I wrote that. It was kind of lead to my thing. Like maybe, maybe this is coincidental. Maybe it's not, but it, it certainly looks like it might be part of it. But the other thing you got to remember is you look back at the rest of Ryan Day's career. It wasn't like he was moving up the ladder every stop he went, right? I mean, somebody would hire him and come be the quarterback's coach. I guess he did sort of follow Chip Kelly around there for a couple of years. But for the most part, like he did the same thing that most coaches do, right? You go coach one place for a couple of years and you go coach another place for a couple of years. Uh, so he's had both experiences. All right. So bottom line. Stephen, would you have promoted Matt Barnes to this job or would you have kept Matt Barnes where he was and hired a different secondary coach? I would have hired a different secondary coach because I don't think it was either promote Matt Barnes or lose him like it is with Kerry Combs. And even if it was? I probably would have brought in an outside guy. and that's not, I mean, it's not that's a slam a, yeah. on Matt Barnes. It's not a, but, I mean, people think he does a good job in recruiting. You just, we have a recruit saying he does a good he, job, right? He does. But I also, in the one time he had an opportunity to kind of show a little bit of something as a defensive guy, he didn't show much when we got to talk to him. So yeah, it's hard. I mean, some guys aren't great talking to the media. I get yeah, that's, that's fair. I mean, I'm very that's... intimidating. I, I, I am yeah. scared yeah. more than a few guys back loud. in the Yeah, I'm loud. That's, yes. There's a difference between much. loud and yeah, very different. You know, it's like you're like a small, you know how small dogs are always barking the most and, like, big dogs are kind of relaxed and chill? You're like a small chihuahua. <laughs> so, Stephen cannot join us for the rest of the football discussion. He has some basketball stuff he's got to do. It'll be me and the rest of the way. First time in my life I've been compared to a chihuahua. If a texter calls me a chihuahua, Stephen, I'm coming for all of you. <laughs> Nathan, what would you have done? Promote Matt Barnes or hire an outside secondary coach? I mean, I, I want to I want to give again Ryan Day the benefit of the doubt that he's been observing this guy for two because again the other the other part of familiarity is you've been as the head coach you've been critiquing this guy for two years and how he does his job on a daily basis so I'll give him some benefit of the doubt that he saw something there that where he needed to be promoted. However, when we were grading the coaching staff uh, last week on the pod, I hope people went back and have listened to those. You know, my point was I do think we had a lot to grade Matt Barnes on last year, and I think. Special teams, I would give a pretty strong grade to other than the fiasco against Rutgers, which whatever. But like some of the defensive decisions, he seemed to like he was either integral in making them or was publicly giving his full throated support to them, such as the decision as to who they started at the single high safety, things like that. Like, I really feel like after watching some of those things play out last year, I think they maybe needed a new set of eyes to come in and reevaluate the talent that they have. When Ryan Day took over, he got rid of the whole defensive staff except Larry Johnson because the defense wasn't good enough. And we spent all season like telling our texters and the listeners here on the podcast that, no, this is not as bad as 2018. That was really a disaster. This isn't that bad. But it still wasn't great. And in the end, you didn't bring in anybody new. We're not asking people to – and you didn't have to fire anybody. We're not asking for people to be fired. I'm saying if you think Kerry Combs should be fired, you're crazy. But you had an opening for somebody new and you didn't bring in anybody new to a defense that wasn't good enough. Now wasn't absolutely disastrous, but it wasn't as good as Ohio state needs it to be. And we've covered all the reasons why that was the case, but you had a chance for new eyeballs and you turned it down. I wonder how much the COVID world has to do with this, that some, that they did not have the coaches convention they normally have. I know urban Meyer, when he hired Chris Ash, interviewed Chris Ash at the coaches convention when Chris Ash was the defensive coordinator at Arkansas, but Urban was only familiar with him because they played Wisconsin when Urban was the head coach 
at Ohio State, and Chris Ash was the defensive coordinator at Wisconsin, and Wisconsin had a good defensive game plan, and Urban remembered that and said, who's that guy who drew up that game plan? And a couple years later, when he had an opening, he hired him. I get that Ryan Day doesn't know as many guys. You also have to be willing to hire somebody you don't know because you don't know them, but you know that they're smart and you know that they're accomplished and you know that they've done a good job somewhere else. And then you interview them and you bring them in. And I am a little, I'm not here to poop all over this hire, which is normally what I do here. I'm on alert. I'm on alert. Because the line between continuity and staleness is a fine line. And people who, as much as they love Jim Tressel, people always complained about that there wasn't that fresh set of ideas with the Jim Tressel staff because it was the same people all the time. And at the moment, at the moment, I would call it what I would call a criticism of Ryan Day is that he leans towards hiring people that he knows. And at some point, you've got to break out of that. And I understand you don't know as many people, but like the first big hire that you made was Halfley. He's your guy. He only stays a year. And then you replace him with the guy that you worked with the first year you were here in Kerry. And bringing back Kerry was great. But listen, man, he hasn't had that many hires to make. And the Mike Yersich hire might be the hire that he wasn't particularly familiar with that guy. And then it didn't go so well. And, and that's mm-hmm. and like read between the lines of the things he talks about. Um, and I don't think Mike Yersich did a bad job here. Dutch Fields had a fantastic season the year. It was just a word. It was a weird working environment. But I think that it's, you know, you can kind of read between the lines of things he talks about with like, well, if I bring in, we bring in somebody with different philosophies and different um, strategies and different scheme. Like he, he, he talks about it. Like if somebody has almost like if somebody isn't going to come in and think the way I do before doesn't do it our way, he has said things like that. Right. But what I don't understand is like, if you, if they were to hired somebody else, if they had hired the 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 equivalent of of Marcus Freeman from five years ago, which maybe that is Matt Barnes, maybe we'll find out that that was Matt Barnes. But if they had hired that guy for this kind of situation, and he came in and had been maybe he had been at a place where they were running a three four defense, or he had been some place where they play nickel as their base package or something like that. Like you're going to tell me that because he has that background, he couldn't have adapted to what Ryan Day wanted and coached the position and coach the defense the way that he wanted like that. There's something about that that doesn't square to me. Like, and at that, so that I understand what you're saying that it's, it's something to just keep in the back of your mind. I think what's going to maybe be the separating decision eventually is when Kevin Wilson leaves, because think of the, the positions, he's, the, the decisions they've had to make so far, they had to replace Yersich, but you're replacing the quarterback's coach. Whereas we've talked many times, Ryan day is like, the partial quarterbacks coach at worst on this team a lot of times. And then this time you're hiring someone who you don't need them to be a coordinator. You don't even necessarily need them to lead a position because you've already got Matt Barnes already kind of doing that job. So the stakes maybe weren't as significant as when, so like someone like Kevin Wilson leaves to be a head coach somewhere. Now you've got to hire an offensive coordinator. And I know that Ryan Day is still the ultimate play caller, but the responsibilities go with a job like that. Do they really just look on their staff or does then he have to like cast a net out and go find a version of him somewhere in the country? And can you, and, and that gets tough because that guy isn't calling plays here. That gets interesting because it's almost maybe start the clock of whoever the next guy is and how long does Ryan day call plays. And it's just the guy he is, he's comfortable with handing that reins over to. So I'm going to try to give the benefit of the doubt. There, there is a point where if the next hire is promoted from within, you've gone too far. So is that is that fair yeah. to say? 
The yeah. next hire cannot be a, a quality control guy who gets promoted. If Keenan Bailey, if Brian Hartline leaves and Keenan Bailey is the next wide receivers coach. That's a problem. That's it, a problem. And that's not a shot of Keenan Bailey. People love no. Keenan Bailey. Yeah, but by great. the way, what's, what's, I can't say Kenny's last name. What's Kenny's last name that was the QC on the defensive line? And you did a story on him, Stephen. And I talked to him and he left. Because at the time, and I'll tell you this, he talked about how he wanted to take over for Larry Johnson. And somebody even sent us and sent me a tweet. It was like, hey, watch this guy to take over for Larry Johnson. We're very well aware of Kenny. And I heard it didn't go over so well at Ohio State that Kenny was saying that stuff, that it maybe was a little presumptuous to assume that you would just rise up and take over for somebody. So he left and went and got a job somewhere else. Kenny Adanuki, I think it's Kenny how you say his last name. Yeah. And, and he's not going to wait out Larry Johnson because who knows when Larry – and he had – it wasn't like he got pushed out or anything. He just decided to go. But it is presumptuous. You know, that's not usually how it works at Ohio State. You don't get promoted from within. This is unusual. So I'm just – it doesn't mean it won't work, but by the way, and I don't mean to use – it's like I can use anything against anybody. You know who a guy was that Ryan Day, I think, did not know that well and only knew him by viewing him from afar and thinking, that guy's unit is good, and that makes me want to talk to that guy and then potentially hire him, and he did hire him. You know who that was? Matt Barnes. Yeah. And now Matt right. Barnes is here, and he loves him so much, he wants to promote him. But when he had a chance, even if you promote Matt Barnes, and now we'll move to Parker Fleming, and this is not anything against Parker Fleming, but instead of going to hire the next Matt Barnes, who you only know by the performance of his players. And gave him a small role at that. It was, he was special teams and assistant defensive backs coach. It wasn't like he was automatically the secondary coach. Right. But it was a special teams unit play, I think, at Maryland that, that Ryan yeah. Day specifically said caught his eye. But then he did not go hire the next Matt Barnes. He promoted from within. So it's like it's one of those things like, oh, Mike Yersich was hired from outside and didn't work. Matt Barnes was hired from outside and did work. You worked so well, you didn't hire the next guy. So I am, I am absolutely we – we'll do a text or poll. I have not looked at the text today. Is there a vibe? I would imagine – I will say on behalf of the Ohio State beat, I thought the beat pushed on this hire a little bit. That it was not like, ah, oh, cool, Let's keep it in the family, go Bucks. Which, frankly, I thought it might be. There was a little bit of like, well, why this? Well, why did you do that? Well, why not this? Well, how come this? And I, I, I thought that was well done by the Ohio State beat. Not because we're against it, but because we're double-checking it. Because being an assistant coach at Ohio State is gold, baby. It is gold. And it cannot – no higher – and I just want to say this for 30 seconds. I'm the guy who says assistant coaches don't matter. The reason I say they don't matter is because there's so many good ones available. So when you promote from within and, like, don't really throw out the net, then I care, right? Because my assumption is if you throw out the net and you pull it back, it's not coming back empty because there are good coaches dying to get here, Nathan. But I think you also, just to be fair, you also don't want to be the place that's the other way too. Like you can't, if you've got a guy at that level, at that quality control level or whatever, that you feel is the goods, you can't really put up a wall and say none of those guys can ever move up, I don't think. Why? Because Why can Alabama you say does it? You can't move up here. You've got to leave and come back. That's the way it works. You don't get promoted from within. You've got to go be a position coach and run a room in the MAC or in Illinois, or Indiana, or Purdue, or Rutgers, you cannot step into it here. It's too big. Look, I'm not, 
I mean, guys leave and come back all the time. There is no quality control coach that is irreplaceable. The idea of like, oh my God, if we don't promote this quality control coach, we're dead. I don't care how good you are. That's not true. Nick Saban loses head assistant coaches left and right. Now and he's, I not say, prom- he's not promoting quality control guys. But he's, he's hiring well, the, every fired NFL head coach. Right. Yeah. We, don't know, we don't know. We should do an investigation on this, and we will. Not investigation. We'll research it. Alabama is off the deep end. Ohio State, I would not be in favor of that either, of the fired head coach of the year as your next assistant. I'm not sure that's exactly right. Saban is unique. I think Clemson has done this some. Some places do this. It is not traditionally what Ohio State has done, and I think Ohio State fans are scarred by the last time in my memory it happened before Corey Dennis was Nick Siciliano, as we've covered, who was not qualified, was promoted because Joe Daniels got sick, and it did not work. So that's in people's heads. But it is not unreasonable to say we're not promoting from within. Do a good job here. I'll help you get a good job somewhere else where you can be a full-time assistant for the first time. And in a couple years when you're ready, I'll put your resume at the top of the stack. But I, I, I do think like a no promoting from within policy would be absolutely fine. Technically, Heartline also was a promotion from within, right? Correct. But, in an yeah, emergency but that dude, situation, in an emergency, yeah, in emergency but, situation, and that resume is unique. That, I'm just saying, that's a that's once just, in a, that's a one of a kind resume to be able just, to, be, to be Ryan Hartline. That's just what, saying for the record, there had been one more recent than Nick Cicillo. But again, I'm just saying I wouldn't. I don't think I would make it an absolute. But I do. I do think it's fair to wonder um, if it if it becomes a practice if that's the best way to do this because of what you're saying, Doug. Because there are just so many guys out there who. Um, I mean, there are probably your people looking around college football right now thinking like guys, guys looking for their break, thinking like, man, I can't even get like this next step up. And like, you can just go to Ohio state and be a quality control guy. And now you're a full-time assistant. Like that's in in twice in as many years. Like, but this, I I mean, I don't know. Every industry is like this, right? I think I've been both in my career. I've been both the familiar hire and the outside hire. And it's like the guy, I think both things can work or both things can fail depending on how you think of me. I mean, listen, the bottom line is it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And like, whether, you know, I, I, the, the decision-making process is what I'm interested in the right. most because some hires work and some don't. And listen, I detailed it to the texters. I mean, most, you know, as much as I'm obsessed with Tim Beck and Bill Davis and all the hires that didn't work, uh, most of the assistant coaching hires here work, which supports my thesis of assistant coaches are replaceable because most of the time the guy that you replace them with works. I just don't know, because here's the other thing, too. And we, I, we'll get out of here on this and get to basketball. I know some people are waiting for some basketball talk. If you are going to promote from within like this, and that being a quality control coach is a path, a reasonable path to be a full-time Ohio State assistant, you better be vetting the bejesus out of your quality control hires. Because you cannot live in a world where your quality control hires are, hey, this guy, this assistant coach worked with this guy and knows this guy. And now that foot in the door is so valuable, but you're not casting a wide net for that. Because Parker Fleming, man, worked with Everett Withers, right? Everett Withers used to work at Ohio State. I mean, like he had an in. Corey Dennis had the ultimate in. That's where you, at some point, you have to be casting a net. And I am not besmirching anybody who is a quality control. I would like to, I'm curious now how all of them that got their jobs. And I'll tell you, that I got hired at cleveland.com because my former sports editor was an assistant sports editor who was my boss today. So I get it. And we all understand that connections matter. But I'm just 
on alert. And I'll tell you what, if these hires work out for Ohio State as well as this, my hire worked out for Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer, home run! Just touchdown. Steven, see, or maybe not. Is Ohio State looking looking for their next? (laughs) Is Ohio State looking for their next Doug Maurice? Brian, would you say that Parker Fleming could be the next Doug Maurice? Can we put a fine point on it? I'm just doing this now. I'm only doing this because Steven called me a chihuahua and my feelings are hurt. But that, Steven, is that not true? That like at some point in the process, because I'm, I'm not interested. I was not previously that interested in digging into how all the quality control guys got their jobs. Because we get it, right? It's kind of a who do you know business. You know what else is a who do you know business? Life. But now that this is like the pool from which they draw, now I'm very interested because on this step, they have four quality control and four GAs, graduate assistants. So, Stephen, my, my ears are perked about paying more attention to the quality control hires at Ohio State now. These quality controls better be guys who should be position coaches at maybe max schools and maybe even group of five schools right now. That's how, how good they have to be to where their next job after this is there's probably a power five school who's hiring them to be a position coach somewhere. That should be their trajectory. And maybe that's putting a bit too much on them because I can identify with Corey Dennis because I went from a stringer to one of the, probably the biggest beat in college football. So I get it. But at the same time, yeah, you need to have elite of elite level quality control guys if their next step after that is being position coaches. So I'm just on, I'm just on alert. It is not the path that I would have chosen for Ohio State. That to come out of the Greg Madison retirement with this is not exactly what I would have chosen for Ohio State. It doesn't mean it's not going to work. I don't want to not give guys a chance. But process matters. And if you have a good process – you're more often than not going to have good results. And so I do have some questions about the process. I also acknowledge that in a pandemic, that process, a hiring process was complicated and it probably was harder to cast a net. So I get it. But at some point you cannot let comfort and familiarity be at the top of the list of the things that you're looking for in a hire, or you are really going to limit yourself in a way that I think does not serve the Ohio State football program. And again, we're talking about a team that was the second best team in the country and a coach who's lost two games in two years. So who are we to question Ryan Day? But Nathan, I'm just, I want to state it for the record. And I'm on alert. I'm on alert how it all works out. Because here's the thing that can be, so Urban Meyer retires and they happen to have the perfect replacement down the hall. Zach Smith gets fired. They have the perfect replacement down the hall. Mike Yersich leaves. They have the perfect. How many times? Well, what do you know? We just had to have the happen to have the perfect replacement. He's right here. We don't even have to leave the building. At some point, you're not doing it because you have exceptional people in the building. You're doing it because it's the easy way out. And that's just real. That's just real. And at some point, It'll bite you. Didn't bite him with Ryan Day. Didn't bite him with Brian Hartline. We'll see with Corey Dennis, and we'll see with Parker Fleming. Maybe they're great, but at some point, you've got to look further than down the hall. Yeah, I, I think it's it's just a much more interesting conversation, even delving into these position switches that we had today. Um, I, I think it's still a more interesting conversation in the broader sense. This Ryan Day is still kind of establishing his identity as a coach his identity as Ohio State's coach. And I think that's where this is a more interesting 
discussion for me because what he did today, what they announced today helps shape what this program is five years from now, maybe, maybe even longer than that. That's what I'm more curious about is what does this, how does this program keep growing and adapting and how does this fit into that? It's interesting. And if anybody related to Parker Fleming is listening to this, just like Bill Davis's uncle used to email me or whatever it is, it's nothing, it's nothing personal. And again, go be the best coach in the country and shut me up. You know, like that's go ahead. I mean, that's, that's great. Good luck to Parker Fleming. Good luck to Matt Barnes with the promotion. Good luck to Kerry Combs being a full-time defensive coordinator. But I do think in the end, Nathan, so much about this year was weird. I think the weirdness of the year contributed this in, to this in some way. I asked Ryan Day if he had any financial limitations as a result of the weird year that maybe you couldn't go hire a coach for over a million dollars to replace Madison, who was making 1.1. He said, no, we are being smart financially. We have to take things into consideration. That was not a factor here. That's what he said. But I do think if it wasn't a pandemic year, maybe this goes a little differently. But we're going to get a lot of we're going to get a lot of proof. Now it was not wasn't a COVID year when Corey Dennis got hired, but we're going to get a lot of proof, right? I mean, if the defense isn't better this year, something's got to there's something's got to give a little bit, Nathan. We're going to be back a year from now if the defense isn't improved. I don't think they'll bring back the same five assistants on that side of the ball in 2022. Maybe not, but you're also getting into a situation too where I think Al Washington has gonna is going to have good opportunities beyond just being the linebackers coach at Ohio State. You're getting to a, a stage of Larry Johnson's career where you wonder how many more years he's going to coach. I mean, Ryan Day is going to have more of these decisions to make pretty soon, whether it's um, someone being pushed out or not. Yeah, yeah, and and how he goes about it's really going to matter. All right, I feel. I, this is one of those where I feel like a negative person at the end, but we got to be truthful and we're just putting you on alert. And I would bet, well, I'll do a texture survey. I, I, I don't know that people are dancing in the street about like the way this came together. Right. That if they, but again, well, you, but it's one of those things where I don't think we're being negative, but it's like sometimes just because you're scrutinizing something and not right. just, and not just giving it a rubber stamp makes it seem like you're being negative. That's and, not what we're doing here. We're not really, you are, I guess, kind of, you did walk up to the line of calling it like a criticism of Ryan day, but I think as a, it just, they have to prove it. They have to prove that this was the right thing to do just as I guess they would, if they'd hired somebody from outside. It's just and what, go ahead. being honest on what happened here. They Ryan days had to make two hires in his career here uh, since his initial staff was put together. And both of those guys came from the quality control room. Well, three carry was the other. Yeah. Well, and then carry, well, then you brought carry back who was already right. here. So you, you've, You've kept it in the family every single time. And at some point, somebody has to call you out on why you keep keeping it in the family. And we talked about Kerry Combs' familiarity as being an asset a year ago at this time. So, True. And, and to be fair, in 2018, in terms of resume, I mean, Greg Schiano, former NFL head coach, and Alex Grinch, a defensive coordinator at Washington State, who was as hot as any coordinator in the country right then, to bring them onto the same staff, it's like, whoa. Like, these are eminently qualified guys. Shiana was already here, blows up. So, again, it's not all about resume. So, I understand that. I don't want to pretend it's all about resume. But I do, in a moment like this, feel a little bit for the Arizona State secondary coach who would have been an awesome hire for Ohio State who maybe didn't get as much of a sniff for something like this as maybe he thought because they – they picked the guy in the building. All right, basketball time. Uh, we'll keep working in basketball here and there. 
uh, as part of it. It's primarily a football podcast. We understand that, but there certainly is a basketball audience out there, and Stephen is spending a lot of uh, good time and energy covering the basketball team. So that's what's coming up next. Nathan and Stephen talking basketball Buckeyes here on Buckeye Talk. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. This is Nathan here with Stephen, and we're going to talk some Ohio State basketball, which is something we don't do often on this program, possibly not often enough, but especially now that once we're cleared of football season, um, now that we're clear of signing day, clear of a lot of things and waiting for the spring, it happens to coincide with what has become a really interesting basketball season for the Buckeyes. Right now, Ohio State is, I think, what is it, fourth place right now in the Big Ten, technically, eight and four, tied for fourth with Wisconsin. Um, 14 and four overall and on a three game winning streak going into Thursday night's game at Iowa, which is a, a huge game in the big 10 this season. So Steven, I guess let's start there. I mean, you're, you're the one who covers this team on a day to day basis. Like being 11 and four right now, is this team ahead of where you expected it to be? Did you think that they would be a top 10 team at this juncture of the season? So yeah, 14 and four. Uh, what I, Initially did a Q&A with our texters. You should sign up for that. I'll probably be doing another one soon, especially if they beat Iowa on Thursday. I, I, I told a lot of the texters, they asked what I thought the ceiling was for this team. And I said Elite Eight. I thought they could get to the second weekend. And then if they're rolling, maybe they can sneak their way in and stay, stay, stay in Indianapolis an extra two days and get to Sunday. I think I'm changing that. And I think I'm going to wait for this Iowa game to play out. But I think this might be a Final Four team just given what the personnel is, they can score offensively. Obviously, E.J. Liddell leads that push, and then Dwayne Washington Jr. as well. He's going through a bit of a shooting slump right now, but when he's hitting shots, he's hitting shots. I think C.J. Walker's a quality point guard. He's not necessarily going to fill up the stat sheet, but he's a floor general out there, and he kind of – he's when you've got talent on the floor, somebody has to be the adult in that room and make sure things aren't getting out of control and people aren't throwing crazy passes. I think Andre Iguodala back with those Warrior teams. That's what C.J. Walker is for this group. But I think Justice Suing can just do so many different things. If you need him to score 15 to 20 points one night, he can do that. If you need him to lead your team and assist, he can do that. If you need him to rebound, he can do that. He's the most versatile player amongst these versatile wings. So I think they were really impressive in January and kind of got through that month smoothly and really should have – they should really be on a seven-game winning streak right now had they not blown a – a double-digit lead to Purdue at home. And so I think they should be the favorite heading into Thursday's game, given the way they're playing in comparison to the way maybe I was playing right now, which isn't necessarily at a high level. So I have not followed them on a day-to-day basis. I've checked in a couple times, and one of the only games I watched was the the Purdue game a couple weeks ago because I used to cover Purdue. So that's the one team that I have some familiarity with. And um, Ohio State had just beaten – uh, somebody else pretty good right before that, uh, Illinois. They beat Illinois at yeah. home on January 16th, and then they turned around and lost that Purdue game at home, and a game that I didn't know, I didn't really feel like Ohio State had played especially well. But since then, three straight wins. Do you feel like something else has kind of clicked in here over these last two-plus weeks? Yeah. My only gripe with them throughout January is they had this tendency to get – and I understand basketball is a game of runs. Everyone's going to go on their runs. We get it. But when you're up 12, 13 points, and you're maybe two or three positions away from putting away a game, especially against an inferior opponent, you have to do that. They didn't do that against Purdue. They didn't do it against Northwestern either. They just pulled that game out. But the first time they played Northwestern, they didn't pull it out. I think that was the one thing that was missing is they can get a lead – 
but can you keep it? Can you sustain it? And can you build on it? And I think that Michigan State game, another opportunity against an inferior opponent where you got a big and Michigan State made its run, but you were able to sustain it and, and pull away in that game that it looked like Michigan State was going to make a game at one point. So I do think they kind of cleaned up some – it was more clean up some issues that were fixable. While in the past, when you got out of January, you saw some major flaws, whether it was their ability to score, their ability to defend, their ability to shoot. Those aren't issues. They're not personal issues. They're just, okay, we just need to play better. And this team started playing better as the month went on. And so I think they're heading into February on the right track. And you can't necessarily say that the past two seasons. Before we get too deep into things, I wanted to talk about the news of the day, and you can talk about whether this is a, a significant impact or not, but Jimmy Sotos being out for the season, having a shoulder surgery, that was confirmed finally today. What does this mean for their, for their depth? What does it mean for what Ohio State's trying to do here over the last couple months? They're fine. I think Jimmy Sotos and, and Abel Porter as well, who hasn't played this year, but those two were brought in to just provide depth in the backcourt behind C.J. Walker and Dwayne Washington Jr. so they didn't have to play 38 minutes a game. But Justice Suing kind of eases that because he can bring the ball to the court and play point guard for you if you need him to. He did that for most of the month when C.J. Walker and Jimmy Sotos were out. And then Michi Johnson is coming along. And he's coming along. And this is basically an extra year for him. But he's their backup point guard at this point. It's those. It's Misi Johnson, C.J. Walker, Dwayne Washington Jr., and Justice Suing. Those are the guys handling the ball for you. And Jimmy Sotos is fine. But that guy moved up to up a level when he transferred. He went from Bucknell, which is not a power five school, to Ohio State in, to play in the best conference in the country. So, look, if he added – I always felt like if he added something this year, he added something. But if you didn't necessarily have him on the floor, you weren't losing anything. So it's a big deal that you lost some depth. But, depth. but I don't think it matters this year. It's not going to be – if this team doesn't get to an Elite Eight or a Final Four, we're not going to be looking back and saying Jimmy Sotos' injury is why that didn't happen. You mentioned Michi Johnson, and it, it is weird. He gets almost like a – it's almost like a spring or an early enrollee for football in some ways, except you get to play games. It's not just that you go through the spring practices. You're part of the team. You're playing games. You're scoring points. What has he brought since he came in, and where do you think he can still go as he's still kind of getting his feet wet, right, at this level? I think this is a learning year from him for him, both what it takes to play basketball at the college basketball, but also – this kid hasn't played basketball in two years. You know, he spent two years rehabbing an ACL injury. And so this is really, the Big Ten basketball is his first basketball since his sophomore year of high school. So I think he, in this season, you take what you can get. He can knock down some shots for you. He can create some things off the dribble. This kid had 50-plus points in his second game as a varsity basketball player his freshman year. So you know he can score. But I think this year is more about you learn from C.J. Walker and you get in here and there and get a little bit of experience before they just give you the keys next year. And to compare it to football a little bit, it's what should have happened with C.J. With Stroud and Jack Miller this year. They should have been learning behind Justin Fields, and every so often you throw them out there to see what they're learning. But obviously a shortened schedule didn't give them that opportunity, but, and they're getting, one of them is going to get handed the keys next fall. Michi Johnson is in the same situation, except he's actually going to be able to put it together on the field before next season gets here, and he's just a starting point guard. So I remember the last time we did talk about basketball on the podcast, which has been several months, yeah. I think it was kind of looking ahead to this season. And one of the things I think that was to be answered for this team was, was offense, right? It was like how they were going to generate offense and where that was going to come from. I, I think at the time you were arguing that the addition of Seth Towns would help that happen. I was – skeptical of that that a guy coming from the ivy league would translate and we didn't even know how good the big 10 was going to be at that point but as it's turned out 
it's it's been like you say it's the best country or the best league in the country this year uh, I think without question so where, where what is he giving this team right now and is it enough to to be to have the kind of impact he needs to have as again as they try to win games in the postseason here pretty soon I think it's enough and it starts with because EJ Liddell has just taken a step and clearly become a guy where I won't be surprised if he's the favorite or at least one of the favorites next season to win Big Ten Player of the Year coming into the year. I won't be surprised at that. He's averaging 15 points per game this year after averaging like four points a game last year. It's one because he's just in a more comfortable role that he's used to, and that's being a go-to scorer and not just a guy you say, hey, just rebound and play defense. But I think with Seth, Chris Holtman admitted – I asked him about this a couple weeks ago, and he admitted to it, and I I think we all did this. I I especially. I think we all kind of looked at Seth and said – Okay, this is – he remembered what he was and forgot, just like Michi Johnson, this kid has not played basketball in two years, and he's going up a level. It's going to take some time. It's going to take a full offseason of him being healthy to be anywhere near that. Now, I'm not saying that next year he's going to come out and be a 20-point scorer. He might not even be a 10-point scorer. But what he's going to provide for them is a guy who can create his own shot. And he's done that this year. He just can't do it as consistency as consistently because he's not always practicing. And if you – watching him before the games he's got heat on his knee he'll put ice on his knee sometimes that knee is still not 100 percent healthy for a guy who has been consistently having surgeries for the past two years I think me especially I did I discounted that I didn't even think about that I just thought man he's fully healthy he's gonna help this team him and Justice Suing are the x factors for this team who can make a deep run and no that's not how this works it was gonna take him a little bit of time maybe a year of just playing basketball again and maybe getting a full normal offseason that's not disrupted by COVID for him to get back to that level and Chris Holtman kind of admitted to that as well so I think he's fine in the role he's in right now he's giving them just enough to where if he gives you a 15 point night it's a bonus night but if he's giving you four five six points a couple made shots here there and he's sound defensively that's enough so you wrote something interesting about EJ Liddell uh, for the site, uh, cleveland.com slash OSU, for those who, uh, who haven't been coming to the site to follow our coverage. But football, basketball, you can get it all there. And uh, you wrote that Liddell might be the basketball program's version of Garrett Wilson. So I, I hate to, to infringe <laughs> on our one basketball segment with a semi-football topic, um, though I find it amusing that you found a way to write about Garrett Wilson, even when writing about basketball, but what, what do you see as a comparison there? Why is EJ Liddell the basketball version of Garrett Wilson? I was very proud of myself as I put the name Garrett Wilson down on that page. I bet you were. I'm glad I get to do this. It's, Listen, I understand one was a five-star and one's a top 100 recruit as well, but he was a four-star. But the idea of these guys who had really good high school careers in their respective sports, Garrett Wilson was awesome. At Lake Travis in Texas, the same high school that Baker Mayfield went to. He had a great career there. And then he comes here and he's kind of in this role in year one. He's just part of the rotation. He's not even the starter in that rotation at the beginning of the year. And now we know what the snack count is at the end of the season, but he wasn't the starter. He was the rotating guy and he flashed at times, whether it was the Miami of Ohio game, whether it was a spring game, whether it's the Clemson game. He had moments where you saw, okay, once that guy has a bigger role in this offense, he's going to be special. And that proved to be true in 2020 when he if you averaged his 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 stats out to a normal year he'd have been a thousand yard receiver he had some awesome moments ej liddell was kind of the same way this is a guy who averaged 20 points per game pretty much for his career in high school and then he comes here and he's just kind of pegged into this role as a first year guy and that's all he is he's not a starter he's just a role player at the moment but you knew you you saw moments that illinois game last season his freshman year where he kind of broke out had the double double you saw in that moment okay 
when his role ex- is expanded, he's going to be awesome. And his role has expanded this year, and he's been awesome. And he's, he's got 20 points in four of the last five games here. He's peaking at the right time as his team is heading into a tournament play a month from now. It's, it's the same kind of trajectory here where you saw it flash as a true freshman, and it started you know, showing itself as a sophomore. And so third year, EJ Liddell, third year, Garrett Wilson. For Garrett, obviously, it's going to be tempered because Chris Olave came back, which is what it is. For EJ, it's not going to be tempered for anybody. He's going to be the best player on this team in year three, and he's going to have an opportunity to get the ball every single night and be a 20-point scorer in this league. As Luca Garza is showing us, that's possible. So that's why it's a proper comparison. It's not necessarily the fact that they were both five stars. and they're being. It's the fact that their progression within the programs has been very similar in how they got to this point. So Ohio State already has a couple of big road wins this season. I mentioned the one against Illinois earlier this season. Um, was Illinois ranked still in the top like five or ten at the time of that game? I can't remember. Yeah, they, they were fourteenth in the country, and when okay. they beat Wisconsin, they were tenth. Right. So then, so that's already two significant road wins. But you said you're still kind of waiting to see what happens at Iowa Thursday night. So what what should people look for tonight after they listen to this Thursday morning? What what is kind of the matchup in this game and what do you think a win would tell us about Ohio state? I think there's different types of wins and you get more of these in basketball than you do football, just because it's more games. Let's let's look at the 2019 football season. Cause that's a full year and how we talked about Ohio state after they beat Nebraska at Nebraska, it was like, okay, this is a pretty good team. Will they go undefeated? What do we, what do we think of this team? And that's how I felt after watching those Wisconsin and Illinois games. Okay. This team can make a deep run. They're a pretty quality team. They're one of the best teams in the Big Ten. And then Ohio State beat Wisconsin pretty soundly. And then they beat Penn State pretty soundly. And we thought, okay, this might be a national championship contending team. They've got two Heisman Trophy finalists. This team is awesome. Iowa is their Wisconsin is Iowa for this basketball team or what those Wisconsin and Penn State games were for that 2019 football season. It's on the road. This is one of the best players in the country. It's one of the best teams in the country. This is an opportunity, and everybody's watching. It's on ESPN, primetime television. This is what everybody's going to be watching from a college, football, college basketball perspective. You go in there and win this game, the expectations start skyrocketing because it's not just people in the, like myself or other people on the beat or other people around the Big Ten who are talking about Ohio State now. Everybody's talking about Ohio State because if they win this game, it's, they don't play again until next Saturday after this game. So they win this game. I mean, they're going to be a top five team in the country, especially since Michigan's in some co- – COVID protocol situations, they'll probably start dropping the more games they miss. Ohio State might be the highest ranked team in the Big Ten, and that's going to be in the top five. And that's a different conversation than what we were having about this team a month ago, let alone a year ago about Chris Holman's program. So you mentioned Michigan's COVID issues. They are still technically in first place in the Big Ten, but they haven't played in a while. And it might be a couple of weeks, what I'm hearing today, before they play again. And it's interesting because Ohio State is still in the mix to potentially win a Big Ten championship. There are a couple losses behind, but you kind of have to wait to see exactly how Michigan's schedule comes around. They've only got one loss. Ohio State has four in the conference, but they're right there in that mix where it's still within reach with with several games left. I also think, though, it's interesting to look. like Before the season, you looked at this closing schedule for the regular season for, for Ohio State of Michigan's on the road at Michigan State and then home against Iowa and Illinois. Now, Michigan State has fallen off I mean they're having one of their worst seasons in in recent memory Uh, but those other two are are both going to be significant home games do you think that's something that Ohio State is still in potential in in contention to really contend for as far as winning a Big Ten championship and what how important is this closing stretch of games that'll be at the end of February 
Yeah, it kind of makes the fact that they were so good in January kind of irrelevant because all the good games are coming up soon. Oh, and in Michigan I, at home also on February 21st. So, yeah, huge stretch of games to end the season. I think what helps is, like you said, Michigan State has kind of fallen off a cliff here. This, is a, this isn't one of Tom Izzo's best rosters. We can all agree with that. I think Iowa isn't necessarily playing its best basketball, especially on a defensive end. They're scoring, but they're also giving up 80 points everybody and Ohio State can score with an ease and we just don't know with Michigan and we Chris Holtman was asked that today which is we're recording this on a, on a Wednesday he was asked today like if Michigan can't play a certain number of games as the first place team in the Big Ten how do you think they're going to decide a Big Ten champ in the regular season he just obviously he's not ready to answer that question that he kind of wants to get through this stretch as well to see how things play out but I think it is possible at this point because We've seen it with some other teams. We saw it with Penn State. We saw it a little bit with Michigan State. When you're coming back from those COVID protocols, you're not clicking. It takes you a couple of games to get things under your belt a little bit. And so if the first thing Michigan has to see, even if it's at home, if the first thing they have to see when they get back on the court is a top five Ohio State team, I like Ohio State's chances as a team who's got a rhythm versus one who maybe practiced for 48 hours before they had to play this game. And the same, which is also, I'm going to pick Ohio State to, to beat Iowa on, on Thursday night just because of those same reasons. One's clicking and one isn't. And the Michigan State, that's not as hard of a game as it should, should be. So I do think Ohio State is probably in the best position right now to take home a Big Ten championship. If you had asked me like maybe two-thirds of the way through, a, through the football season, like what surprises you the most? I probably would have said something like, uh, maybe the defensive tackles. Cer- certainly by the end of the season, you would have included Trey Sermon in that, the way he had come along. So as you're kind of – you're about two-thirds of the way through this season, I think, what would you say has, like, been the thing that surprised you the most about what this team is doing now? I guess either good or bad. A couple of things. I think the first is, is Justin Arns and the way he's developed. He could always shoot the ball. That was a given. He's shown that in two games – Twice the last two seasons, he's had a game where he hit five, six, seven threes in the game. Is basically the reason they won a, won a game. He's shooting 50% from three-point range this deep into a season, which is ridiculous. But that's not what's impressed me. It's, he's not a liability on defense anymore. And C.J. Walker came back for an injury, and you would think he would go right back into the starting lineup. No, he's kept C.J. coming off the bench, and he's kept Justin Orange out there because he can trust him as a defender now, which wasn't the case the last two years. So even when he was the only guy who could knock down a shot outside of 15 feet, you couldn't play him because he couldn't guard anybody. He can guard a little bit now, which allows you to keep him on the floor, which allows floor spacing for guys like Dwayne Washington Jr., Justice Sewing, C.J. Walker, Michi Johnson, E.J. Liddell, because it's not all clamped in the middle like it was when you had Caleb Wesson down there. So I'd start with him. I think th- this freshman class has been exactly what you thought it was going to be, especially Zed Key. I don't think this is the superstar class. This is the class where you got two guys, Zed Key and, Gene, and Eugene Brown, who are going to be role players on this team. They're, they're going to be quality guys who are constantly in the rotation. Uh, Gene, Eugene Brown's going to be a 3 and D player, while Zed Key's going to be a guy that when you play a guy like Luca Garza, when you play guys like what Illinois has to bring with Kofi Cockburn, you can put him out there and guard those guys. But they're not go-to guys. That group is coming in twenty at the end of the summer when you get Malachi Brown in here and Kalen Edsler along with Michi Johnson is already here. That was your super stars but I think Zed Key has been a lot better than I thought he would be in year one I thought he would be okay maybe he'd play five minutes a game but he's a legitimate part of the rotation and it's usually the first guy off the bench coming in for EJ Liddell to keep him out of foul trouble a little bit so those two guys I think have been vital even in these small roles that they've had I think this is one year where there's no question that if you're excelling in the Big Ten, it shows that you're probably prepared to make a a tournament run. That can be dangerous to say because it's all about matchups when you get into the tournament. But 
would you look at this roster? Do you feel like this roster is made to match up to whoever they face in, in a tournament scenario? You know what I'm saying? Like, cause you're going to see so yeah. many different kinds of basketball. You're going to see so many different kinds of players, shapes and sizes and skills. Is this roster uh, versatile enough to match up to whoever they're going to see when March rolls around? That's the key word here. And I asked Holtman a lot about versatility in the, in the off season, just looking at this roster, it's a bunch of guys between six, four and six, eight, at those wing spots, they can play a lot of different ways. Obviously, in the Big Ten, you want to play big because everybody's got a great big man. So you can throw Zed Key and Kyle Young out there at the same time and have a bigger lineup and just put EJ at the three. But you can also have a lineup where EJ's your five, man, at six foot six. And you can put him out there with a guy like Justice Sewing who rebounds it very well. Dwayne Washington Jr., he's a little on the shorter side, but he's a guard. Justin Orange is guarded better. You can put Musa Jala out there if you have a guy that you just want to shut down. He's your defender on this team. You've got shooting. This team isn't stuck playing one style of basketball. In the last two years that I've covered this team, it's been we're going to give Caleb Weston the ball, and if that's not working, we're not really sure what we're going to do here. They don't have to worry about that anymore. Obviously, you have go-to guys in EJ Liddell and Dwayne Washington. Those are the two guys you count on scoring. But EJ Liddell's had some bad games, and they still won. Dwayne Washington hasn't shot the ball well in almost three or four weeks, and this team is still winning. And that's when you know you have a good team, when your best players can have bad nights and you can still pull out wins. And you couldn't say that the last two years. So, yeah, I do think they're one of the few teams in the country who I think can just match up with anybody because they have a personnel group. They have a five-man group for pretty much anything you want to throw out there. Ohio State has not advanced past the second round of the NCAA tournament under Chris Holtman. Two games were two years where they won the first game. Uh, and then last year, obviously, there was no tournament. Um, so that kind of affects, I guess, how you, how you maybe look at his tenure. But they've also been like right around 500 in the Big Ten the last years. In fact, two years ago, they were four games under 500 in the Big Ten. So I guess just maybe can you assess the job you feel like Chris Holtman has done this year? Did they need a season like this to, to sort of answer things, maybe get some of the momentum going? towards out of being in that sort of I wouldn't say mediocrity I think you're winning 20 games a year you're finishing in the top half of the Big Ten I don't I don't dismiss that I don't think that's hard to do but that, that they wanted more than that and they needed this kind of year to kind of get that going I think it's a combination of a couple of things one you do want to see progression in a program and I think the first two years he was here especially that was overachieving the fact that this team won the Big Ten and he was the conference's coach of the year that team probably shouldn't have done that, which is why they lost in the second round of the NCAA tournament. I, I remember that team. I was covering Purdue, obviously, with that team, and there was one game at Mackey Arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kata Bates-Yop hits a shot at the buzzer, and that, like that it kind of – it was a very, very, very close three-way race to win the Big Ten that year, and that's um, – actually, I think Michigan State may have ended up technically winning. I can't remember, but um, it, it, like you say, it was a three-way battle for that for that first spot, so – I remember that season correctly, and everyone kind of did think that that team had overachieved a little bit, but they were giving Holman some credit for, for bringing that out of a team that hadn't been playing at that level before, bringing something out of Bates Diop that we had not seen him do before. So now it's uh, – but then, then there were two years after that where it did seem to kind of chug along a little bit. Yeah, and even in year two, the fact that they got to the second round was overachieving given what that roster was. You already said it, they were below 500 in the Big Ten. I think last year. Um, that team should have been better. 
in the Big Ten. It should have been – I understand it's still limited, but that team just should have been better. And after the season, I know when he got on a Zoom call with guys, he said that he felt like that team was starting to click at the end of the season and they could have got to the Sweet 16. Yeah, they should have. They probably should have. But getting to the second round of the tournament is no longer an applaudable thing for Chris Holman and this roster especially. The Sweet 16 this year should be the floor, given what this roster is, given the way they're playing right now. But there's also this idea – I mean – when you think of what Ohio State has been for the past decade, what they were under Thad Mata at their best, they were getting to the lead eights, they got to a Final Four a couple of times, but they were always fighting near the top of the Big Ten. I think that's a reasonable expectation for what Ohio State basketball should be. It shouldn't be what the football team is, where it's we need to be getting into the playoff and competing for a national championship every single year. No, but it should be a situation where you're constantly among the best teams in the Big Ten. You make pretty quality tournament runs where you get to the second weekend, and every so often you get a roster that's filled with probably a really good recruiting class and some um, some other decent recruiting classes, and you put together a roster that can make a deep run out of Final Four. That's a pretty quality place for them to be, and I think this is the first step in that direction if they do that this season. So barring just running into the wrong matchup, which which can happen, you run into a hot team, whatever, but if, if Ohio State doesn't make – um, an, at least, you know, an elite eight kind of run if they get tripped up again in the first round or maybe they get to sweet 16. Is there a bugaboo out there that you think still needs to be addressed? Like something that could be like looming out there that this team needs to uh, refine over the next month. I, I just think they need to show whether or not the lack of size is going to be an issue. And I think Thursday's game is going to say that regardless of what Luca Garza does, he might just get his numbers anyway. Cause I mean, he's one of the best players in the country, but the, if they're inefficient numbers, you're okay. If he gets 25 points, but he needs 25 shots to do it, you'll live with that. Cause that means he stagnated the offense and no one else really did anything productive out there. They're versatile on the wing, but they don't necessarily have the best size in the world. And so I, I don't know if it's a bugaboo or if it's something to watch, but it is the ace thing. I'm interested to see if, if that's going to be an issue, because if it's not going to be an issue, I see no reason why this team can't make a deep tournament run, because it's the only flaw on this team. But it, when all the other things that are pros for you are so loud, that one con, I think you can overlook a little bit, especially once you get out of Big Ten play, where the rest of the country doesn't really have elite big men the way that the Big Ten does. How are they going to match up with Luka Garza tonight? Uh, just kind of, it's, it's, a, I've, we've seen some examples of it with Kofi Cockburn and some other guys. You might double them at times in the post. You're not just going to leave EJ on him by himself. I think Kyle Young might start out on him. Zed Key will come in and he'll guard him straight up, but I mean, throw some doubles at him. You mess with him a little bit. You try to get him off of his spot. It's a lot of different, it's, there's no one way, you know. Sometimes you might just have to live with he was better than you in that possession and he made a shot. But I think you just got to find different ways to make it tough, whether it's going zone sometimes, whether it's maybe even getting him in foul trouble and attacking him on the offensive end. And that's how you get EJ Liddell involved into the game, get him to the free throw line, all these different ways that maybe you can just get him off of his game and maybe not, not make him a non-factor because that's not going to happen, but just make it a little more, more difficult for him to get to whatever his numbers are. What I think is really interesting about this, the way this schedule ends up, is they've already played Illinois once, beat them, but now Illinois is coming back to Columbus later this season. This is going to be their first shot at Iowa, but Iowa's coming back to Columbus this season. Like, they're going to have to, you know, it's it's not just beating these teams once. It's like, okay, now you get, like, Illinois is going to come back in. It's a well-coached team. They're going to come in with a, and, and some great players, and going to come in and take a, a new shot at you, like based on how that first game went. So then how does Ohio state react and what, what developments does Illinois make? And the same things that can happen with this Iowa game, like whatever happens Thursday night, 
Iowa gets to come back to Columbus, and now it's a whole new battle. And I think that is maybe going to be something else that tells us a little bit about this team and how it how it just kind of deals with that next challenge because it's not that's not necessarily a an NCAA tournament situation. Obviously, it's very one and done, and sometimes you get very little time to react to what's coming at you. You know, you win a game on Saturday or Thursday, and you got to play somebody new on Saturday. But I think it, it does tell you something about just a team's maturity and a team's um, savvy a little bit when it comes to basketball. That when that when you have to go try to beat a team twice in the same, a really great team twice in the same season. I think a little bit. It's also, I mean, the tournament mindset of, you know, you just beat a team. Now you have to go play a team that's better than that. Whether it's Iowa right. the second time or Illinois the second time, they're going to be better than the first time you played them. Plus, they're already going to have film on what you did the first time you played. So they're going to adapt to that. And so can you adapt to that? Can guys who maybe didn't play as well the first time you guys met, met, can they play better? Can a guy like EJ Liddell, who had 20-plus points the first time he played Illinois, can he repeat that performance knowing that they're going to try to take the ball out of your hands more often than they did the first time because, well, maybe they, you just weren't as high on the scouting report or maybe you just had a good night and you were able to beat whatever scheme they had for you that night. So it's a combination of – it is more of a discipline thing. Just like with the NCAA tournament, it's a discipline of being able to flip that switch immediately and put all your focus for that next 48 hours, whoever that Sunday or Monday team is. You got to do the same thing here. It's You just get a little bit more time, so that discipline should be there even more. So, yeah, it does have a tournament feel now, uh, especially when, listen, you're playing these teams twice in the regular season. You might see these same teams again during the Big Ten tournament. If there's a Big Ten tournament. We're assuming there is going to yeah, be a Big yeah. Ten tournament. I know they've scheduled one. Yeah. But now the, the location is up in the air and, and we'll I think the idea, yeah, I think the idea is move it to Indianapolis and then the winner of the tournament just stays there, which probably eliminates a little bit of health problems. Cause if you're already standing at a hotel room, there's no reason for you to leave. If you're going to play another team the following weekend. So I, that's, I've heard that idea. I like that idea. It makes the most sense. You're already there. Why leave? Just why come back, come back to Columbus just to go right back up to Indianapolis four days later. I think I speak for all Big Ten basketball followers, except those who maybe uh, live in, let's say, Evanston or possibly Madison, um, and by saying the Big Ten tournament should just permanently never be held in Chicago again. It's the worst. I've covered the Big Ten tournament in every city it's been held in. Chicago's the worst. It's worse than Washington, D.C. I, I hate covering it in Chicago. It's just, it's, it's just not a good fan experience. Indianapolis is perfect, football or basketball. It's yep. right there, and there's a nice little downtown area. Area. There's hotels. It's very easy access. There's no reason to move it, ever. Without question, it's the best fan experience. I don't know if they keep putting it in Chicago because of the connection to the Big Ten there, if they feel like they have to have something like that in their like kind of flagship city. But uh, I, I, if, we, if you were to poll every basketball fan in the Big Ten and ask them what city is the best to host the Big Ten tournament, Indianapolis would win in a landslide and I would, I would rather cover it. The best big 10 tournament experience I ever had was maybe New York city. That was amazing. Madison square garden. And like, and now it, but I would not advocate it for it to be there every year. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was a great for like a one-time thing. And maybe they'll do that again down the road just to throw a bone to the East coast. But it was like, it was a really fun experience. It was something a little bit out of the ordinary. And again, the fan experience around the arena is great. And you cannot say that about Chicago. So regardless of COVID, Let's get it out of Chicago. That's my little yeah. soapbox for the night. <laughs> no, I agree with you. 
Well, I'm glad we got to talk some basketball. I hope everyone is, is following your coverage uh, as this team, really interesting team now is about to make um, kind of the stretch run of the regular season and then and, and maybe start to give a better idea of what's, what's possible beyond that. So I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll talk basketball on Buckeye Talk. Uh, so for Stephen Means and for Doug Lee Maurice, who was here earlier, that was Buckeye Talk.